Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the Harry Potter series of books, J.K. Rowling created this amazing world of witches and wizards, a world of magic with an epic battle between good and evil and between love and hate. And in the first book of that series, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry finds a mirror tucked away in an unused room of the Hogwarts castle. And when he looks in the mirror, he sees himself standing with his parents. His parents are standing close to him with their hands on his shoulders, and they gaze at him with love and acceptance and pride. What makes this remarkable is that Harry was orphaned as a baby, and he was raised by relatives who shunned all things magic. So when Harry sees his parents in that mirror, he can't understand what he's seeing. It definitely wasn't his past, and it didn't seem like there was any way it could be his future. But he's so excited to have seen his parents that he wanted to show his best friend, Ron. So he brings Ron to look in the mirror. But when Ron looks in the mirror, he doesn't see Harry and his parents. He sees something completely different. He sees himself as head boy of Gryffindor House, captain of the Quidditch team, holding the Quidditch Championship Cup. And Ron and Harry are baffled. They try to make sense of this mirror and why it's showing them each something different. And neither of them notices this backwards writing inscribed at the top of the mirror that reads, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. It's not until later in the book when Dumbledore, who's the headmaster of the school, explains it to Harry that Harry finally understands. The mirror, Dumbledore tells him, shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. If such a mirror were real, what would you see if you looked into it? I suspect that may not be the easiest question to answer. There are lots of things that we want, and some of them we want very deeply. We might want our parents' approval or a better relationship with our children. We might want better finances, a different job, a greater sense of stability. We might even be like the little boy I heard about who said that the thing he wanted most for Christmas was a programmable magic wand. Which, if there is such a thing as a programmable magic wand, I want on that list. (laughs) Because it would be pretty great to just wave a magic wand and it would fix anything that is wrong with the world exactly the way you wanted it to. But setting magic wands aside, there are lots of things that we want and they can be very good things. But sometimes, I think our wants serve as masks covering up something else, something that's deeper, our longings, the deepest, most desperate desires of our hearts, as the Harry Potter mirror puts it. 
We long for acceptance and unconditional love. We long to know our inherent worth and value. We long for an assurance of real security that somehow, despite it all, we will be okay. We long for a world made right, a world of justice and mercy and peace. But those longings can be elusive because they are beyond our ability to fulfill. And so we try to substitute for them with things that we can produce, things like money or image or possessions or power. We try to satisfy our wants because we cannot of ourselves satisfy our longings. And that's a vulnerable place to be, to have to admit that we cannot give ourselves what we most desire. So instead, we choose to pursue the things we merely want, treating them basically like a magic wand that we hope will fix all of our problems. We try to satisfy our wants so we don't have to face the vulnerability of being unable to satisfy our deepest longings. Now, in our Isaiah passage this morning, we encounter Ahaz, the king of Judah. There's a lot going on in this passage and in this chapter. A lot of it's pretty confusing, and we will unpack it in just a moment. But at the heart of this passage, I think, lies a very familiar problem, which is the problem of trying to fulfill our wants so we don't have to face the vulnerability of our longings. What Ahaz wants is to secure his own safety and power. And so he looks for a magic wand solution through political strategizing and power plays. And it's all because Ahaz doesn't want to face the fact that his real longings for security and peace are beyond his power to fulfill. The fulfillment of those real longings would require him to depend on God, which is something that Ahaz resists whenever he can. Now, you might be wondering how I got to that conclusion from just those few verses that I read. And fair enough, this is really Isaiah, while one of the most beautiful books in the Bible, is also one of the most complicated. And this chapter, chapter 7, is especially complicated. But essentially what's happening is this. The kingdom of Israel is now a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom, which is called Israel has formed an alliance with a nation called Syria. And these two nations want Judah, the southern kingdom, to join their alliance and resist Assyria. So yes, there is Syria and Assyria, just to make it a little more complicated. So when Judah's king, Ahaz, refuses to join this alliance between Israel and Syria, Israel and Syria attack Judah. Because they want to depose King Ahaz, and replace him with a king who will join their alliance. And Ahaz and the people of Judah are worried about this attack. Verse 2 says, The heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So God sends his prophet Isaiah to reassure Ahaz 
that Israel and Syria will not be able to overpower Judah. Isaiah tells Ahaz that the northern kingdom and Syria won't last very long. They will both be destroyed soon. In fact, Isaiah describes them as smoldering stumps of firebrands. So stand firm in your faith, Isaiah says to Ahaz. And that's where we pick up with our morning's reading, beginning at verse 10. There has been some unknown amount of time that passed between the first part of the chapter, when Isaiah offered these words of comfort and assurance to Ahaz, and now, where the passage begins, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. God's first attempt at reassuring Ahaz through Isaiah's words must not have taken very well, because God is sending Isaiah again to speak to Ahaz. And this time, God offers Ahaz a sign to prove to him that his promises are true. So first, God had offered Ahaz his word that Judah would be safe, and now he offers him a sign, a tangible sign to assure Ahaz of God's trustworthiness. In fact, God invites Ahaz to name the sign that he wants, anything he can think of. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. It seems there are no lengths that God won't go to to win Ahaz's trust. But rather than accept God's gracious offer of assurance, Ahaz refuses the sign. And he does it in the guise of piety. See, back in the book of Deuteronomy, God had commanded the Israelites, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. But what had happened at Massa was that the Israelites were grumbling and complaining against God, and they basically demanded that God show them a sign. Ahaz's situation is entirely different. Ahaz didn't demand a sign. God offered the sign. The real reason that Ahaz refuses to accept God's invitation to ask for a sign isn't faithfulness, it's fear. Because what Ahaz wants is not to be faithful to God, it's to preserve his own safety and power. Back in the book of 2 Kings, we read that even before Israel and Syria attacked Judah, Ahaz had already proven his unfaithfulness by committing idolatry and murder. He worshipped other gods. He even sacrificed his own son to those gods in the temple. So when Israel and Syria threaten Ahaz with their combined forces, does he plead to God for rescue and help? No. What he does is to march over to Damascus, which is the capital of the kingdom of Assyria, and he asks the Assyrian king for help. Ahaz promises to make Judah a vassal to Assyria, basically a a smaller nation that pays a larger nation in the form of money or goods or people in exchange for protection. Ahaz even sends silver and gold to the king of Assyria, silver and gold that is taken from Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. 
as an attempt to buy Assyria's protection. In other words, Ahaz turns his back on God and seeks security from a pagan king instead. And he doesn't care what it costs anybody else. Because it wasn't Ahaz's own personal wealth that was going to Assyria. It was the silver and gold from God's temple. It was payments of crops, not his own crops, but the crops that were gathered as taxes of the people. And when Assyria demanded tribute in the form of people to serve as soldiers and slaves, Ahaz would hand them over too. It was always the poor that bore the highest cost of the tribute that was demanded. Even though as king, Ahaz's fundamental responsibility was to protect the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized in his kingdom, in reality, Ahaz was happy to sacrifice them for the sake of his own security and power. So when Ahaz refuses a sign from the Lord, it's not because he doesn't want to test God. It's because he doesn't want to trust God. Whether he admits, itself, admits it to himself or not, Ahaz knows that if he's going to trust God, then he's going to have to do things God's way. He's going to have to give up control over the things that he wants, safety and power. He will have to trust God to do not just what's best for him, but what's best for all the people of Judah. And that is just not something that Ahaz is willing to do. He would rather take matters into his own hands engineer his own safety, and pay tribute to Assyria so that Assyria will shelter and protect him, whatever the cost to his people. So it's not really a surprise that Isaiah doesn't have a lot of patience for Ahaz's refusal of God's sign. He knows that it's not an indication of faithfulness. So God says to Ahaz through Isaiah, I will give you a sign anyway. You, you who have sacrificed your child to other gods, I will give you the sign. I will give you a child. A child who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This child won't just be a reminder of my presence. He will be my presence with you. God responds to Ahaz's faithlessness, not with scorn or condemnation, but with his own faithfulness and the promise of his presence. And it's a sign not just for Ahaz, it's a sign for all the people of Judah. Because Ahaz wasn't the only one who knew that Judah's position was precarious, with Israel and Syria on one side and Assyria on the other. God wanted to warn all the people through this sign not to look for help in all the wrong places. God knew that they were tempted to look to another nation to save them from their precarious position. And God wanted to remind them that no nation could be the savior that they longed for. Because more than they may have wanted safety or power or influence or importance, what the people really longed for was a savior. 
a savior who could bring lasting security and peace, a savior who could set the world to rights, a savior who would not leave them, but who would be with them. They longed for a savior they could be with, because they were made by a God who longs to be with them. That's the real power of this sign that Isaiah gives to Ahaz. That God is not far off, demanding empty obedience and capriciously raining down judgment. Instead, God is near. God is with us. And God calls us to be with him. Yes, God calls us to faithfulness and to obedience, but the faithfulness and obedience that God calls us to are the faithfulness and obedience of covenant love. Because the sign that Isaiah gives to Ahaz is a sign of the same covenant that God had made with Ahaz's forefather, David. God promised David that David would always have a descendant on the throne of the kingdom of Israel. And God said about each of those descendants, I will be like a father to him and he will be like a son to me. When he does wrong, I will punish him, but my love will never be taken away from him. God had always promised Israel that he would be their savior. And God's call to Israel was to be faithful and to put their trust in him. To look to him and him alone to fulfill their longing for a savior. In our reading from Matthew's gospel this morning, we hear again the words of the sign that Isaiah gave to Ahaz. Matthew declares that Jesus' birth is the fulfillment of that sign. That in Jesus, God has become God with us in the fullest possible sense. It's interesting to note that when the angel appears to Joseph to tell him about Mary's child, the angel addresses Joseph as son of David. The angel is signaling to Joseph that God has been faithful to his covenant with David, which was the same covenant to which he called Isaiah to return. The angel is telling Joseph that the child that his wife will bear is the fulfillment of God's promises, not just to David or to the kings who would follow him, but to all of God's people. The angel is telling Joseph and telling each of us that God still stands ready to meet our deepest longings, that God still wants to be our savior. As I close, I have to note that there may be no better week for us to hear Isaiah's prophecy than the week we have just had in this country. No matter what you think about the president's impeachment, the events of this week expose the tendency that we all have on both sides of the aisle to look to politics or politicians to save us. But the truth is this. There is no president, 
There is no Congress. There is no Supreme Court that can save us. The government can and should be responsible for policies that support human flourishing. That's their job. But if we look to any politician or any agency or any branch of government to save us, then we're making exactly the same mistake that Ahaz did. We are looking to satisfy our desires for comfort, for security, for power, for being right. We are looking to satisfy our desires at the expense of satisfying our true longing, which is to be faithful to the one who offers us the true security of covenant love, to find our salvation in the one who is God with us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, for we are longing for a Savior. Amen.